Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. If you're anything like Sayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today we have a fantastic guest for you, Sarah Weaver. She is a coach, speaker, and real estate investor and real estate entrepreneur. And in the summer of 2021, she went from three to 15 units in 68 days across four states. And she also self-manages her properties, including five short-term rentals. And her other life's passion is to travel. And since 2019, Here's the really interesting part. She has embraced a nomadic lifestyle and has traveled to 44 countries on six different continents. 44. That's incredible, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. I should clarify that was not since 2019. The, the 44 countries is, gosh, probably over, I think it took me nine years to visit that many countries. Still, that's incredible. We strive to want to go to traveling, especially now when everybody's unable to travel because of COVID and the restrictions going on. So to have that privilege to be able to go see other countries and to be able to travel where and when you want, it's very exciting. And, you know, and I think COVID really showed me that I'm so glad I didn't wait. I didn't wait until I had more money or until I had a partner. I did a lot of it alone. And I, when COVID happened, I remember sitting, I was in New Zealand during COVID, or I should fled to New Zealand because of COVID. I thought it'd be a great country to hide in. And boy, was I right. And I just remember sitting there thinking, wow, I'm really glad that I traveled when I did, because we don't know what the future or the near future is going to look like in terms of traveling. So what were you doing before you decided to make that move to become a full-time nomadic traveler? Yeah. So I was working for an American company, 40 hours a week. I was a W-2 employee. However, I did have the ability to work from anywhere. That was something that was really important to me. So starting in 2015, I actually went full remote. I was working for a recruiting company in the real estate industry, and I could do everything over Google Voice. And back then we were using Skype uh, (laughs) pre-Zoom. And so I was spending a lot of time abroad And it hit me, I think in 2018, that I looked at my finances and I thought, wow, I can live so much cheaply, more cheaply by living in South America or Southeast Asia. And so January, 2019, so three years ago, I bought a one-way ticket to Argentina and I've been nomadic ever since. What was the scariest moment for you or the scariest thought that you had as you decided and made this decision? You know, what's funny is none of it scared me. And I don't know if that makes me crazy or if it just means that we talk a lot about in real estate, like your why has to be bigger than your fear. 
And I think for me, traveling is so important to me that it's like why I travel is so much bigger than fear of being alone or being pickpocketed or whatever people's fears are around traveling. I think my why was just so much bigger that I rarely thought about the fear factor. Can you share with us what your why is? Yeah, I want to encourage people to live a big and exciting life. And I do that by living a big, exciting life myself. One thing I've noticed as I share my story is travel's not for everyone. You know, I think like we had talked off camera, I think a lot of people do want to quit their job and go travel the world, but some people just want to spend more time with their kids or go on a really long bike ride, whatever big and exciting looks like to you. I want to help you get there. And I've found that real estate investing is my vehicle of choice. I think it creates passive income and I think allows a lot more freedom than I had before. So it's a great thing that you mentioned it because a lot of people are really interested in wanting to travel. They're curious about this type of lifestyle and having that freedom to go wherever they want, whenever they want. But as they're looking at it, you know, what did you do to kind of prepare yourself from a financially standpoint to make sure that you're able to support this lifestyle? And, you know, how did you come to that decision that you're going to be okay? And then what were kind of the steps you did afterwards within real estate to help along this journey? Absolutely. So if someone's listening and they're working a W-2 and they now have the ability to work remotely, just do baby steps. Book a two-week vacation in a what I call digital nomad hotspot. And so I can list a few, but if you look on the internet, they're all there. Um, I think there's a website called Nomad List that even tells you like where's high-speed internet, where's cheaper cost of living, all of these things that check your boxes and just book two weeks. Airbnb has this great new feature where they're starting to show internet speeds or Wi-Fi speeds. And so you can even know the Wi-Fi speed before you check into an Airbnb and just try it. And so you don't even have to sell your house and quit your job and anything dramatic. You can just hopefully take your job with you. If that's not an option, I actually just got off the phone with a coaching client and he is taking a leave of absence. So that's kind of his crutch that he can fall back on that his company has agreed that they would essentially take him back when he's ready, which I feel like is he's super blessed to be in that position. But he's decided, he's like, you know, I'm going to take a year off because this is important to me and I want to do it now. Maybe for some people, it's doing it now before they have kids or before they get another mortgage or whatever it may be. But I think my biggest like words of encouragement is just book the flight. Everything else will work itself out. Yeah. The small commitments at a time, small little yeah. things. I'm not telling people to sell your car, <laughs> leave your wife, sell your car. No, don't do anything dramatic. Like you can just buy a ticket and go on a two week trip and see if you even like it. Yeah. Cause the lifestyle, it may not be for everyone, but at the same time, you know, you might find that you really love it. It might be the best thing for you. Exactly. And I mean, some countries are more fun without it, like on vacation than they are living there. That's depending on the country as well. So when you made your first trip, you bought that one-way ticket for the first time. What did you do to prepare yourself on your journey? Because you bought a one-way ticket and you could always buy a one-way ticket back, right? But what did you do to prepare yourself mentally, financially? What kind of, can you share with us the steps that you took? Yeah. So my first kind of big trip or like starting point with a job, like being a digital nomad would have been in 2016. I went to Colombia. Um, in South America. So a lot of people were like, what? That sounds really dangerous. I did a lot of research and not only is it safe, it's great weather. Medellin is really temperate. It's a mountainous city. 
And there's a great digital nomad community. So for the listeners out there, I call people who can work from their computer, I call them digital nomads. So as long as I have a Wi-Fi connection, I can work from anywhere. And there's lots of people like me in Medellin, Colombia. And so there's Facebook groups out there. I gave the advice earlier this morning to that same client. If you just type in, let's say, Mexico City, and then the word expat or digital nomad, you'll find dozens of Facebook groups for all these different major cities around the world. And you can have what I call instant friends. So I'll never forget when I arrived to Medellin, it was like within, I think, four days. I like arrived, let's say, on a Tuesday. On Friday night, I had dinner plans with girls from all over the world. And frankly, two of those girls are my friends still today. I mean, gosh, what is that? Six and a half years later. Wow. Yeah. I can only imagine the experiences that you've been able to see and to experience. And then also the different types of people that you've been able to meet along your way. Where is your most favorite place that you've been to so far? So I always answer this question like in categories. So my favorite food is Japan and Thailand. I mean, just absolutely the best food. Best nature would be Banff, Canada and New Zealand. I mean, nothing can top New Zealand nature. For people, I loved living in Mexico and Argentina. It was just absolutely fabulous. And then for a European country, I love Portugal and Slovenia. Got it. No, that's fantastic. So when did you start to get into purchasing your first real estate property? And were you doing it when you bought it? Was it while you were overseas or when you were here in the U.S.? So my first property was in 2017, November 2017. I lived in Denver, Colorado, and I looked around and I thought at the time prices were too high, which, you know, everything's always laughable later. And so I drove across I-70 and I bought my first property in Kansas City. I was physically there so much so that I actually took the upstairs down to the studs and did a really big renovation project. Then I did the rent by the room strategy and I rented out each of the rooms to tenants, aka roommates. And then I was the best roommate because then I left (laughs) and I went to Europe for the summer. And while I was in Europe, I thought, wow, this is working. And I think there was this light bulb moment. I knew it was going to work. When you talk about fear, I I wasn't fearful about buying that property. Part of me just knew that buying real estate was a good idea. And I bought that property. And then it wasn't unfortunately until two years later that I bought my second property And that one was remote. I was living in Mexico and I bought it in Missouri. And so then I had three units for what that would have been from 2019 until this year, 2021. So how do you manage the properties while you're overseas? Do you have a property manager? But I think you said that you manage it all on your own. I do. I'm not a parent, but I'm sure parents that are listening, you probably say, do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) And that's how I feel about self-managing. I actually don't necessarily recommend it. I don't want to be self-managing a year from now. But for right now, I self-manage and I have great tenants. That is really important. Right now, I have 15 units and really only one of my tenants gives me trouble. So that makes like a world of a difference. So I have great tenants and then I have great on-the-ground support. So for my Kansas City properties, I have a list of plumbers, electricians, handyman. My dad lives about 25 minutes away. He doesn't like it, but he'll swing by the property if he has to. I pay him now. It's gotten to that point where he doesn't want to do it anymore. And then same thing, I invest in Omaha, Nebraska and Des Moines, Iowa. 
And I have what I call my Rolodex. So I have a list of vendors. And sometimes you have to call three plumbers to find one that works. And of course, I learned that the hard way when you need a plumber that day for that problem. And so now I make sure that I have that list of vendors before I invest in a market. And how about the rental process, renting to the tenants there without having to see them face-to-face? How does that work for you? It's worked great. One time I did do a what I call tenant placement. So I paid a property manager just to place the tenant. Recommend that 10 times out of 10. It was amazing. I ended up actually overpaying the property manager because he did such a good job. And it was alleviated a lot of stress. And then recently I found three tenants. This truly is like just the universe like taking good care of me. I don't believe in luck, but in this case, I do think I was really lucky. All three of the tenants were moving from out of state. And so they required no showing. And so it was just kind of this beautiful process where I posted it on Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist and probably a few other sites. And they reached out, they committed to the property with just pictures. And then I coordinated getting them the keys without ever going to the property. Would I be able to do that every time? Heck no. And so I have to figure out a better system, which is why I really like using property managers for tenant placement. Got it. And so, you know, now you've gone up to 15 properties and are you purchasing this on your own? And how does, in terms of like financing, how does someone go from three properties to 15 in such a short period of time? Yeah, absolutely. I love talking about the financing because I think it's really important to talk about. So it was three units. So it was two properties. And then this year I bought four properties taking me from three units to 15 units. So the first one is a fourplex that I did an FHA three and a half percent down. So I'm living in one of the four units. Then I bought two duplexes next door to each other. So four units total. And I used hard money for the acquisition. They required a down payment of about $80,000. So I used private money for the down payment. So I was very over leveraged if we want to talk about leveraging. And then I used the Burr strategy where I bought the property, I renovated the property, rented it out to tenants like the tenants that I mentioned that were moving from out of state. And then I refinanced the property, got almost all of my money back, paid off the hard money lender, paid off the private lender. Then the newest property, the newest acquisition is my first partnership. And it's an equity partner, essentially, in another fourplex, which just happens to be next door to my fourplex. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's some very creative financing options that you put together there. It was really amazing. Someone actually last week said, wait a minute, you bought over a million dollars worth of property in 68 days, and you essentially only had one down payment. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) So yeah, it was very creative and I didn't necessarily do it on my own. And so like absolutely have to shout out to every late night panic call where I called my investor friends, like, am I doing the right thing? I had a friend teach me how to do private lending. And so if you're listening to this, like your real estate investing does not, you're not an island. You don't have to do any of this on your own. Even if you have to pay to join a mastermind, do it because you don't have to do any of this on your own. I surely didn't. I had a lot of people I could ask questions to, and that was crucial. Especially putting together a strategy like you had utilized. So there's a lot of moving pieces that were up in the air at this time as you were trying to execute this financing strategy. 
as you were trying to juggle and put together all the pieces, because at any one moment, if you missed something on one side, it could potentially have like a domino effect on the other aspects of what you're trying to accomplish here. So what did you do to make sure that the deal itself and all these different options that you were putting together was executed successfully? I love this question because I want to make it really clear that I was not calm, cool, and collected during the entire process. There was a lot of moments where I thought, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Should I be doing this? And so I have to kind of push everything back to the numbers. So whenever I had those moments where I'd wake up, you know, at 3 a.m. and thinking and worrying, I'm not kidding. I would get out my spreadsheet or my deal analysis and I would run the numbers again and again and again. And then it would be like, okay, like the numbers don't lie. Okay, I can panic about how am I going to manage this from afar? How am I going to acquire so many properties so quickly? But if the deal is amazing, you can find people that will lend money to you. And then that costs money. So then you add that money back into the calculator as an acquisitions cost. And if the deal's still a good deal, then you should buy it. So then for you, as you were, you purchased up to 15 so far and like within the 68 days and you've been managing it so far away, what has been the biggest challenge for you so far? Bookkeeping, bookkeeping, (laughs) bookkeeping, bookkeeping. It's funny, not very many people talk about stabilizing your portfolio. And essentially acting as an asset manager is now one of my biggest priorities. Of course, I want to get more properties, but I need to focus on the properties that I have. And so I need to set up systems, especially if I'm going to continue to self-manage or what I'm thinking I'm going to do is I'll hire a virtual assistant to help me self-manage. So I have to set up systems and then I have to get my bookkeeping in order because we buy real estate because it's a great tax benefit. So you can't mess that part up. And stabilization isn't very sexy, but I think it's really important. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So I also want to touch base a little bit about your rental strategy and what you're implementing in your different properties and who you're renting to at the same time. Can you share with us, are you focused primarily on the typical short-term rentals like Airbnbs? Are you doing long-term rentals for all of your properties or a combination of both or some other type of strategy? Yeah. So five of my 15 units are furnished rentals. During the summer months, all five of those, those two fourplexes next door to each other. So it's eight units total, two different buildings. Five of the eight are now furnished rentals. And this is in Omaha, Nebraska. So no offense to Nebraskans, but I always joke, it's not necessarily a destination hotspot of the United States. And so I wanted to kind of play with Airbnb. I knew that it was a strategy I was interested in. And at such a low price point, I bought one of these fourplexes for $320,000. 
So it was a really cool way to get in. And it cash flows, the fourplex cash flows with long-term tenants. So for me, the risk was really low. I was going to buy some furniture, not spend too much money and just see if it worked. And man, did it work. In the month of August, two of the Airbnb units, so I had two that were long-term, two that were Airbnb, and the two were making 2200 each in the month of August. My long-term tenants are paying 800 bucks a month. And so I knew I was onto something. And that's when I was able to acquire the fourplex next door. And so now five of these units are furnished, but I got a little nervous about who uses Airbnb in November and December in Nebraska. Truly, I didn't know. And I frankly didn't really want to sit around and find out. So I posted them on Furnish Finders. And I'm using a strategy that I like to call medium-term rental. So it's not long-term and it's not short-term, it's medium-term. So it means it's 30 days or more. Oftentimes, these are traveling nurses who are on a 13-week contract at a nearby hospital. So I now switched all five furnished rentals into this medium-term strategy for the winter, and it's going really well. That's fantastic because especially in the environment that we are in today, there's not a lot of supply out there for these medium-term rentals, especially for these types of nurses who are traveling to these destination places to support where their, their help is most needed. And so I can only imagine the demand for it has been huge. Yeah, it's wild. So here are some of the numbers. There was 1.6 million traveling nurses in 2019, and that was pre-COVID. I don't have up-to-date numbers, but I know that in 2020, they said that there was a lack of 300,000 traveling nurses. And so even if they were to fill that, we're going to be at about 2 million traveling nurses. And we know there's a housing crisis. There's a housing shortage. And so as far as supply and demand goes, I'm really confident that I could switch all eight of those units to medium term and I stay full. I actually I'll tell the listeners a, a really interesting story. I just had a nurse who moved in, I think about a week ago, and she stayed in a hotel for five weeks waiting for my unit to open up. And so immediately I ask a bunch of questions. I say, hey, like, was there shortage? Is there no other options? How much is a hotel cost? I had so many questions for her and it was so flattering. She said, no, there's other units in Omaha. I said, okay, then why are you doing the hotel. And she said, there's none that are as cute as yours. <laughs> and I don't share that as a brag. I share that to tell the listeners, if you're going to do a furnished rental, you have to make it look good. It makes a world of a difference. And I am fully booked. Someone will move out at 10 a.m. and someone new will move in at 3 p.m. Even if that means they have to stay in a hotel or a different unit in the meantime, because my units, they look nice. And I'm not spending a bunch of money. They're not fancy but they are really cute. Yeah, no, definitely. It's visualization first, right? As we're scrolling, what catches our eyes the most? What am I going to stop on? What piques my curiosity? And if the pictures are not appealing to you, you're going to just continue moving on and looking for something that does interest you. Absolutely. And for her, she had been a traveling nurse for a year and a half. And she said, she's like, I'm sick of living in dumpy places. I want to be somewhere cute. I'm tired when I get off work. COVID's kind of made my job really exhausting and your place is really cute. I said, great. Want to pay more? No. <laughs> so was there a different type of 
agreement or paperwork that you typically have to do with the medium-term rentals versus the short-term or the long-term? Each city is different. And so the lease that I'm able to use in Omaha, Nebraska is going to be different if you're in University City, Missouri or Los Angeles, California. And so you definitely want to check with property management laws in your area. Got it. So can you share with us in terms of like when you converted from Airbnb to servicing the traveling nurses, what did that do to your bottom line in terms of like rental collections? Yeah, absolutely. So I can compare the numbers. So August was just this crazy high month for Airbnb. Like I said, I made 2000 or 2200 per unit and I didn't see those numbers in September. And so that was kind of this light bulb moment for me. I was like, I'm going to immediately switch both of them to the traveling nurses. And so the data that I have isn't incredibly accurate because I don't have enough months to show you. But what I can tell you is that the amount of cleaning fees that I paid in August, because I was allowing one night stays, was so high that I actually think I net within 100 to $200 the same with medium term. So I find that utilities tend to be the same or a little bit lower for medium term. So let's just call that a wash. And then the actual cost or like income, I should say, is a little bit higher. Like in August, I'm not going to hit 2200 with traveling nurses like I did in August with Airbnb, but Airbnbs drop in September. And so I ended up actually netting the same having a unit on Airbnb versus having an, a medium term. And then the other thing to take into consideration is I'm only paying a cleaner once every three months instead of, I mean, my cleaner made over $1,000 the month of August. Well, yeah, that's direct impact to your bottom line if you're not having to servicing it every other one, two, three nights or something like that, but instead of having to do it every three months. Yeah, definitely can see that. And I don't have, I wish I had the data on supplies, um, but as far as like toilet paper, paper towels, cleaning supplies, those types of things you are offering, or at least I'm offering what I call a starter pack for my traveling nurse. So I'm giving a few rolls of toilet paper, one roll of paper towels, a few cleaning supplies, but I'm not just going through those every single stay like I am with Airbnb guests. Got it. So Sarah, what is next for you? Are you planning to settle down anywhere or are are you planning your next destination? What are you focusing on next? Oh gosh. You know, it's so funny. I keep telling myself, not even telling anyone else. Um, thank goodness my parents are used to me living this nomadic lifestyle. Um, but I keep telling myself that I'm going to slow down. But if you looked at my 2022 itinerary, I'm going to Guatemala for a month. I'm speaking at a conference. I'm attending a conference. I'm hosting retreats for investors. That's one of my new kind of fun businesses that I've started. And then I also, I'm furnishing rentals for investors. So I right now have seven clients in six different cities where they've actually hired me to turn their long-term unit into a furnished unit. And that involves some traveling. And so I'm still really nomadic. Oh, yes. It can only... Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like a fun thing to do, to go and make to make something more appealing to other people and putting together in a sense like art kind of thing and putting all the pieces together and furnishing it and creating something and seeing what the end result looks like. It's so much fun. I mean, I was at World Market picking out throw pillows 
And I just looked around. I go, I can't believe this is my job now. Like I created a business. And then I was telling someone else that I'm not an interior designer. I'm an investor first, which I think is the value proposition that I bring my clients. But picking out throw pillows, yes, it's fun. But is that like my life calling? No, I don't think so. And so to kind of tie it back, like I'm helping my clients create more passive income because I do believe this medium term rental strategy is a fantastic strategy. So I'm helping them create more passive income so that they can turn around and go live their big, exciting life. And so sometimes when I'm shopping for the throw pillows or picking out furniture online, it all ties back to wanting to help people live a big, exciting life. And so what was the biggest takeaway that you've gotten so far being in real estate and along your travels as well? You know, I just heard David Osborne speak. And if anyone doesn't know who that is, definitely look him up and read, if not all of his books, at least one of his books. And he said, he still has self-doubt. And I appreciated his vulnerability on stage so much because I still have self-doubt. People look at my lifestyle and they're like, oh my gosh, you've made it. You're living the dream. And don't get me wrong. I love my life and I'm so proud of what I built. But even sometimes I'm like, gosh, what am I doing? Like, is this all going to work out? And so if there's any investors out there that are just like, they're feeling overwhelmed, especially just with the state of the world, you're not alone. Like feeling overwhelmed or self-doubt, it's all normal. So how have you been able to, if you're going down that mindset path and you're having these self-doubts, what has been the best way for you to pull yourself out of there and focus on the positivity, the future and the outcomes that could be waiting for you? I run the numbers again. And if that's not enough, I'm a verbal processor. So I call one of my best friends because now they're all in real estate (laughs) and we talk through it. And so I think that building a tribe of real estate investors is so important. And what's so cool is you can do it through Instagram. You don't have to pay. You don't have to join a guru or a mastermind if the money is not there or you just don't want to. You can reach out to someone that you admire on Instagram and build friendships that way even. And what is the one thing that you know about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? Asking people for money is not scary or distasteful you are providing an opportunity. So when I got my first private lender, I provided an opportunity for him to make a great return on investment. He was thrilled. He wanted to be involved in the project because I did worry about like too many cooks in the kitchen or what would that relationship look like? And no, he just wanted to trust me and wanted his money. And so I wish that I had learned that strategy earlier on. So how to ask for private money was a game changer. Yeah. Everybody has some different interests. Not everybody's interested in doing the same things. Some people just want to park their money somewhere and then have it work for them. And then other people want to do the work and create it and manage it and operate it and run it successfully. And together as a partnership, it's really nice. And everybody is a win-win situation. Absolutely. So if there are listeners out there that think that that sounds great and they want to be passive, be a private lender. I mean, it's a really great opportunity to make great return on your money completely beat the inflation situation that we have going on. And you're going to make an investor like me really happy. So what is the one thing that sets successful people apart in real estate investing? Consistency. You have to consistently be writing offers. You have to consistently be growing. And then at some point, you have to take action. I know a lot of investors that I met three years ago when I started networking with other investors. 
and they still own either the same amount of properties that they did or no properties at all. So at some point, you have to stop educating yourself and you have to start taking action. And you're on the road quite often, all the time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) And so for you, managing your real estate business and at the same time traveling to all these different countries and places, well, it has been the best tool or technique that you've utilized that has really helped you with your own business and your personal or your business life. Yeah. First off is just being a clear communicator. So when my tenants move into my unit, they get what I call a house manual. And it has my contact information. It says, if you can't reach me, here's the other way to try to reach me. And then here's who to call after in this ascending order. And so clear communication is crucial. If anyone Googled me, I mean, I'm all over social media now. My tenants know who I am. I think at least half of them do. So they know that I'm always traveling. And so some of them will message me even on Instagram. Not very often. I try not to be very responsive. But I think clear communication is key. And then as far as tools go, if anyone's thinking about going abroad, get Google Voice. It means you can have a a US-based number and be reachable anywhere in the world. Some countries don't like it, but that's kind of the best tool. And, And patience. Have a lot of patience. Awesome. Well, Sarah, I so appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your story, your incredible story and your life with us and what you've been able to build within real estate. And so then if our listeners were curious to learn more about you and your story and what you've been able to do in this space, where is the best place that it can go? Yeah. Like any good millennial, Instagram is probably the best place. It's Sarah D. Weaver, S-A-R-A-H. D-W-E-A-V-E-R. It's the same on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Even my email is sarahdweaver at gmail. And I really do like hearing from listeners. I'm sure that there's something that I said that someone's going to disagree with, or there was a head scratcher in there, or people have questions. Reach out. I'm happy to help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Sarah, for your time. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.